when you sell something called full self-driving and you but you put driver assistance features underneath that brand you poison the well for everybody and it's too bad uh, i'm writing a column today uh which i'm about to s- submit which is um basically the, the headline is it's not self-driving unless you can sleep in it because i tried to explain all this to my mother and she had a very simple question she's like can i sleep in it Hello and welcome to the Autonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the communications director at Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association, uh, producer of Apex, the Secret Race Across America, author of uh, The Driver, which is my autobiography. <laughs> well, I almost forgot about it. Um, and director of special operations for Argo AI whose views I do not represent on this show, but I still have a lot to say. Um, hi, hi, Ed. Nice to see you. Hey, and if you're, if you're waiting uh, for Kirsten's melodious voice to join in today, uh, I'm afraid that's not going to happen. Uh, she has made the fatal mistake of going off and enjoying her life and leaving us to uh, run this show on our own. Uh, so no girls allowed this episode. Uh, it's, it's, it's the boys' Autonicast hour. Yeah, <laughs> that's really going to be popular. All right, what, oh, are the top, what, what are the topics? What are the topics? Well, okay, so the big one we should probably start with, um, just because it, it just broke as we're recording this, um, is that NHTSA. Uh, well, and actually, it's funny because I, I heard about it last night uh, from someone who was like, "Dad, you know why NHTSA is getting a bunch of people in the space together tomorrow morning?" And I said, "No, I don't," but I'm really curious now. And this morning, this story is out. And NHTSA is going to require that every crash involving driver assistance has to be recorded with them. But not just driver assistance. Okay. Right? Uh, I have not actually read the rule yet. Maybe you should read it. I'm doing that right now. What this rule says here is uh, NHTSA's statutory mandate includes the exercise of its authority to proactively ensure that motor vehicles and motor vehicle equipment, including those of novel technologies, perform in ways that, quote, protect the public against unreasonable risk of accidents occurring because of the design, construction, or performance of motor vehicle and against unreasonable risk of death or injury in an accident. Um, so it states that automated driving systems and advanced driver assistance systems are motor vehicle equipment. Uh, it says, given the rapid evolution of these technologies and testing of new technologies and features on publicly accessible roads, it is critical for NHTSA to exercise its robust oversight of potential safety defects in vehicles operating with ADS and level two ADAS. So you're right, Alex, this is both autonomous vehicles, but also driver assistance. So I'm curious, how are all of these vehicles in the road? that have some driver assistance supposed to transmit that data back to and to whom? That is a good question. Like I, um, I, I, mean, ta- I mean, this seems, forgive me, this seems very targeted at Tesla, um, or at least uh, whether they like it or not, optimized for Tesla, because Tesla clearly, all the vehicles are connected and they're pulling data off the cars, but uh, many OEMs are not. So how do, I don't even know how that, how does it work? Yeah. So it says specifically this general order requires manufacturers and operators to report certain crashes involving these vehicles 
that occur while the ADS or level two ADS is engaged or immediately after it's in use and to provide sufficient information for NHTSA to identify crashes warranting further follow-up. That seems vague. Crashes that meet specified criteria must be reported within one calendar day after the manufacturer and operator learns of the crash. Another ADS crashes must be reported on a monthly basis. The reporting obligation is specific to these crashes, which is a primary source of information regarding potential defects. Um, so, I mean, as to the how, like, you know, every automaker anyway, and, and this is different for AV companies, they haven't necessarily had to do this, but every automaker has to be in touch with NHTSA, right? They have someone who, when they have, whether it's a, a service bulletin or a recall, someone has to be that point person to communicate with, with NHTSA. And so I assume, you know, that infrastructure exists. However, for like a pure AV company that doesn't have a consumer facing product on the road right now, you know, you don't have that infrastructure, do you? I mean, that is kind of a big deal. Well, I mean, an AV company knows at all times what their, what their test vehicles are doing and what their deployment vehicles are doing. It's still a fairly, it's not a, it, it, it's, that's nothing compared to the tens of millions of vehicles, hundreds of millions of vehicles that are out there uh, in this country. And I'm, I'd be curious to learn more about what the mechanism that NHTSA an, anticipates or believes might exist for this data to be pulled and shared. Uh, it seems like an enormous data and labor layer that doesn't exist for an OEM. Like they don't just, I mean, they don't know. They sell the cars to franchise dealers. The cars get sold. So unless the person has a another relationship with the OEM, uh, I, I can't wait to learn more about this. So. Yeah. So there's a list of, uh, of manufacturers and operators that uh, shall be served with and are then upon upon service subject to the requirements of the standing order. Uh, so it, it basically names the companies that are subject to this by name. It's not clear how, you know, what the criteria was to be on this list. Well, is it, is it the usual suspects or what am I missing? It's a, it seems like it's pretty diverse. It's uh, everything from low speed shuttle companies like easy mile. Uh, it's uh you know, uh, uh, Daimler trucks, so like OEMs, suppliers, major level four developers. Uh, and it actually names, what's interesting is it doesn't just name the company. It actually names the person at each company who is who is responsible for this reporting. Uh, is Ferrari, wait, is Ferrari on the list? Yes. Carlo <laughs> Daneo, general counsel of Ferrari North America is absolutely on the list. Wow. Well, you know, this... Whatever comes of this, I, there will be great listicles to come out of the learnings uh, from each of these companies. I agree. And, so. and honestly, I mean, it, it's going to be more data transparency. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in terms of sort of helping the public understand and, and trust this a little more. One of the things that concerns me about it right off the bat is that it, te it treats driver assistance and autonomy as comparable somehow. I mean, it doesn't equate them specifically. They're just all lumped into this one policy. You know, and I think this is the problem with Tesla. And we've, we've talked about this a lot that like the challenge is not, you know, figuring out what they've done. That's not great. Like we, you know, we've talked about that a lot on this show. It's about creating a policy that is able to rein in what are pretty clearly like unique abuses by one company while also establishing um, a, a standard that can be consistently applied to every company in the space. Would, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Well, so, and, and what it's really doing is it's putting a, a burden, you know, basically because of Tesla, it's, it's putting a big burden on a lot of other 
companies who now have to do all of this reporting. Potentially, they have maybe even PR challenges coming out of it that they didn't have to deal with before. Well, you know, I'm trying to say this in a nice way. By no one wanted to take Tesla on directly in the language game, optics game, years ago. And I mean, this podcast was basically founded because of confusion around the SAE levels and our frustration. And this comes from me, a Tesla owner, frustration with people not understanding what we're talking about. And this was going to happen sooner or later. Either the industry was going to do it or the government was going to do it. Uh, But this this NHTSA announcement seems, well, something was going to happen. And this is the result of a lot, a lot of history. Uh, it's also might just be the first step too, right? Like it's, I, it, to me, this strikes me as potentially something that signals sort of more active, if not like regulation, then definitely, I guess it's regulation. It is regulation, right? Like it's, I mean, requiring disclosure. I guess. I mean, we, I mean, you know, something, the easiest thing is we wouldn't be in this if there was a clear understanding by the public that there is self-driving and there's driver assistance. And the levels two, three, four, all this nonsense has just destroyed, has just poisoned the well. Yep. You know? Um, and so and the, what's the word? Um, conflation of brand with technology or brand with meaning is, I mean, when you sell something called full self-driving and you put, you put driver assistance features underneath that brand, you poison the well for everybody. And it's too bad. Uh, I'm writing a column today, uh, which I'm about to s- submit, which is um, basically the, the headline is, it's not self-driving unless you can sleep in it. Because I tried to explain all this to my mother and she had a very simple question. She's like, can I sleep in it? That's what matters. Because if, yeah, if you can't, not self-driving. And I, I, I wish, I hope that my friends in the sector who work in communications at AV companies, other than Argo, uh, I hope that they do not cede ground on, the, on language. Do, we cannot let self-driving get away from us and be ceded to people who make driver's assistance. Because if you let, if you let a self-driving vehicle, if, if, if a vehicle that's self-driving is some one in which you have to be awake, then what are you going to call something in which you can sleep? Yeah. So actually, I, I will make a modest proposal here and suggest that that question, can you sleep in it, be called the Roy's razor. <laughs> thanks. You know something? Right? Uh, like thanks. Occam's razor? Because it, it cuts through the issue, right? There's a lot of complexity and a lot of other stuff, but that one question cuts through all of it. Uh, so Roy's razor. Thanks. Um. I, I want to read a, a little bit more from this this order because there are two sort of categories of, of reports that have to be in here and, and might be kind of interesting to, to look at that. So, um, so, so one category of crash, the new rule requires that the, the companies report it within one calendar day, not one working day, one calendar day of receipt uh, after receipt of notice of such incident. And then an updated report on the 10th calendar day after receipt. So um, these are the the conditions for those kinds of crashes. Um, A, a subject vehicle, whether equipped with ADS or level two ADAS, is involved in a crash on a publicly accessible road in the United States, including any of its territories. 
B, the ADS or level two ADS in the subject vehicle was engaged at any time during the period from 30 seconds immediately prior to the commencement of the crash through the conclusion of the crash. And C, the crash results in an individual being transported into a hospital or medical treatment, a fatality, a vehicle towway, or an airbag deployment, or involves a vulnerable road user. That's interesting. Uh, and D, notice of the crash is received within 10 calendar days or more after being served with this general order. So that's one category. Um, the other category only requires them to report um, in a regular incident report on the 15th calendar day of the month, uh, following the calendar month in which the notice of the incident was received. And that is for crashes where A, a subject vehicle equipped with ADS is involved in a crash on a publicly accessible road. Interesting here, ADS. So this is only for AVs. So if you if you have an ADAS involved crash, they want to report within one day, <laughs> one calendar day. If it's an AV, you can wait until the 15th of the next month. It's the funny ADS. because you would think that actually the AV folks. I mean, it would be you, easier for them to report, right? Well, in theory, I mean, it's theory. assuming you have you know a reporting structure in place. But I still understand how you're going to do this with you go buy a Cadillac from a dealer. Like, what? How are you going to know? Like, you know, so buy a, and like, yeah, your automatic no, emergency braking like trigger. I mean, what? Uh, there's probably a huge windfall here if this becomes. Uh, the the norm for some I don't know the, the add-on data companies I anyway, I'm not going to speculate it is I mean it is going to be it's going to be a big adjustment because like you so like you're saying there's a lot of of cars that are like brands and and cars where you know they have driver assistance systems level two uh, systems but they may not necessarily have a lot of really good data in an ongoing basis about these vehicles, right? So like Tesla, and actually it's fascinating, right now there's a lawsuit going on involving the Jeremy Banner crash, which was the one in in, in Florida, the Tesla. It was just the second, like the Josh the Brown one. one. The second one where he went, yeah, right. There was a, it was the same kind of uh, a highway, undivided highway where a, a truck, you know, you're allowed to sort of take a left across it and and the truck made the left and he T-boned essentially the, the truck, just like the Josh Brown case, also in Florida, that lawsuit's ongoing, and um, that's uh, a lot of a lot of interesting information is coming out about you know the the kinds of data that's automatically transmitted to Tesla, among other things, when a crash happens. Not every auto OEM who has a level two system on the road gets that level of data from their from their vehicles. So, a this is like weirdly going to be a tougher compliance thing for maybe some of the bigger OEMs, although they also have a lot of infrastructure for dealing with this stuff in terms of the regulatory relations part of it. Is already in place, but it also kind of strikes me as, I mean, obviously, right? Like Tesla, this is about addressing Tesla's behavior because Tesla can. Tesla has no excuse to not be able to immediately provide data. Actually, Tesla probably has the easiest path forward here in terms of grabbing the data and handing it over. But let me not speak <laughs> too much on that. Uh, what's our next topic? Because we, you know, just because Kirsten's not here. Doesn't mean this is a Tesla episode. What else you got? Uh, well, actually, <laughs> Alex, don't don't fool our readers. We we know very well that basically all we're talking about is Tesla today because Kirsten's not here to to keep us on the state straight and narrow. Don't don't try and don't try and be Kirsten. It's not going to work. All right. Uh, I ha we do have one more Tesla topic. Then what is it? 
Uh, we have two. Well, I mean, uh, you said you wanted to talk about Plaid, um, and also uh, we could talk about uh, uh, Andre Karpathy's CBPR talk, uh, which I guess you didn't. It, you didn't see that, did you? Look, uh, I understand Karpathy is um, people like him. I've heard him speak before, uh, but I, I think what we have in society today is. Th- investor narratives and like market narratives are now more powerful than product experience in itself because i don't sit around and like marvel at how uh my phone works like i if the if the camera gets better i might want to upgrade it but other than that i'm good for a couple of years and the average person in the street does not care how their phone works or that how elevators go up and down, or how planes take off. They just don't. They don't even know if they're on a Boeing or an Airbus, although maybe they, they knew in the last year or two. So all this n- discussion about how Tesla may or may not get, get to get to you know level four or beyond is just nobody, the average person in the street just does not care. And why should they? All they care about is, is it work? Can I pay for it? Does it work? Like, I honestly am not interested in, in listening to someone explain to me um, the the uh, details of blenders. I've got a blender. It's great. No, if you told me blenders had just been invented, I'd want to watch one commercial and I watch the other commercial. Then I go read wire cutter and I buy the one that, that works and I'm never going to think about it again. So, you know, I, I my, my uh, notifications at Twitter I've got a bunch of Tesla stands asking me if I've watched it and if I have anything, any commentary to add to it. Um, so that my commentary is exactly that. I really, I mean, I'm mildly interested because I work in the sector, but I'm not interested in the product um, until there's a product to discuss. And there isn't. So, so what? Well, and that's kind of the fascinating thing about what Tesla's done, which is they've forced the general public, well, in theory anyway, they've forced the general public to have to understand this stuff because as a consumer, right, like, you know, it, the the two main sort of perspectives are that Tesla is the leader in, in autonomous driving technology and they will beat everyone to full self-driving or that the whole thing is kind of a scam, basically, Um and so, and so deciding which of those two things is true or not, like puts, there's a good sized burden on, on the general public for that as a consumer, right? As do I buy this option? But then also as an investor, you know, this has a huge impact on Tesla's business. Like the, the odds of them being successful at delivering on this has a huge impact on, on the business. And so, you know, but, but at the same time, so they put all this pressure on the public, but then, the, you know, there's not really much out there that can really help people understand this. It becomes a debate, which is a very weird thing about tech for technology, right? Because why, why is, why, why do people seem to think that like arguing about this stuff online is going to make a difference in any way, right? Either they deliver or they don't, right? Either you can sleep in a Tesla, Roy's, Roy's razor, you can sleep in a Tesla or you can't. There's no debate there. That's the beauty of it. My mother um, was not interested in talking about Tesla radar. <laughs> She's, oh, they, I, uh, and someone else said to me, oh, I heard they dropped the radar. And uh, what do you think of that? And I said, well, I read a wonderful book when I was a kid written by Charlie Beckwith, who was the founder of the Delta Force. And he said, he's like, you know, when it comes to helicopters, three is two, two is one, and one is none. And that's how I feel about autonomous vehicle sensors. 
if your life depends on it and uh, and someone else's life depends on it, you know, I'm willing to pay. I don't, if it's the same price, I'll take the extra sensors. If, if it's more expensive, I'll take the extra sensors because safety critical. That's just me. I heard people say that uh, that's naive of me. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it is. Maybe it is. But before planes went from tr- you know tri tri wing designs to biplanes to single wing designs, tech had to improve. So I like to I like to get a I like to ride in a plane that has um, redundancy uh, that I understand until it has less redundancy or equivalent redundancy in a simpler form factor that I understand. But if it involves safety, I want to have some understanding of it. And yeah. Uh, Charlie Beckwith's rule, Beckwith's razor of autonomous vehicle design, it's probably a wise one. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, we see this in a lot of things. Actually, it's a good maybe segue to talk a little bit about the, the Plaid uh, Model S because, uh, like, in general, you know, I, I, I totally understand, like, what Tesla's tapping into with full self-driving in particular is this desire, right? Like, we live in a, a, a very tech-centric age, and people, uh, there's a lot of social status involved with being on the cutting edge of technology. And like, I think there are, I think there is a case to me made, to be made potentially that like, you know, for a premium product that targets, you know, but, but it has to be very, very targeted that like that makes sense, right? In the same way that like Ferraris, you know, uh, or, or like a, a 911 GT3 you know, no one is going to to buy that instead of a Toyota Camry, right? It's not <laughs> going to be just like a default choice. And therefore, it doesn't need to be held to quite the same standard. It's a specialized thing that is for a niche audience. And like, if full self-driving were, like if Tesla were very clear about what it was, it is A, there's no promises that it will even ever be full self-driving. B, you know, you have to sort of pass some kind of, test or screening or something to confirm that you are, you have a like more sophisticated understanding of the technology and it makes sense for you to be kind of a beta tester or whatever. Like, I don't think it's the end of the world to offer that opportunity. What I think is the end of the world and and what people who make this argument completely leave out is that like the company has just given so much uh, contradictory and wrong information that like, you can't have that kind of program unless you're being very transparent and very honest, at the very least with the people who are involved. Wait, and I gotta, that's not what this is. It's as you said, it's a narrative. It's about propaganda. It's not about, you know, really, you know, making sure people really actually understand this stuff. There's a there's an agenda. Ed, and I appreciate how how strongly you feel about this. But when you said plaid, I thought it was going in a different direction. And here's my views on this this plaid model S. Okay. It's a really cool car and it's really fast. Um but the best Tesla is not the Plaid. It's just not. The best Tesla is the Model S long range non-Plaid. It, that's what it is. Because what you really want is the car. Sorry, guys. I know range anxiety doesn't make sense anymore because EVs like Teslas have pretty good range. Um, but the, the, you save thirty dollars or $40,000. Nobody launches their cars every day or even once a month or even every year. So I've raced cars. I own sports cars. I've Got two Teslas. Guess what? It's in, my Model Three is in chill mode. It's in chill mode because there's no, there's no, you just don't need the power. Stupid. Most people aren't qualified to use it. Which brings me to my other thing uh, issue with the Plaid. But it's not Plaid or Tesla. It's the culture 
uh, around plaid and the way uh, Tesla stands cheer it on. Uh, you know, there there's a long history of muscle cars in this country, and you know the Ford versus Chevy and Mustang versus Camaro, and uh, the horsepower wars. Uh, I mean, it, the OEMs won, but in a lot of ways, Americans lost because you have a lot of people who are not trained to drive vehicles safely buying cars with more power than they can handle. And this is getting worse. The training is going down, power is going up. Uh, Tesla is not uniquely guilty here, but it is especially ironic because a lot of the same people who were like, oh, Tesla, 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 full self-driving is coming, are, are championing a car which is meant to be driven by a human. And, and, and the other thing, and this is a, the biggest missed opportunity for Tesla, and it, this could be accomplished by any company that has sports car stuff and racing DNA in, racing in their DNA. And that is to build the first real driver education system to, to gamify driving, build it into the car, and link it to an insurance company. That's a system that's not punitive. That is, um, it's all carrot and that enhances driving and makes you a better driver while allowing you to take advantage of your sports car. I mean, and Tesla, it, I mean, they had, in, in, in theory, a multi-year advantage here. They have an insurance arm. They have all this real-time data. They have, all, they have everything. Um, and yet, they have let that, no one's done it. And in that way, Tesla has no lead because any other company wanted to do this could. You know, Rimic, interesting, you know, Rimic, the only other company out there with like a 1.9 second zero to 60 electric supercar. Um, Rimic has, has been hiring ADAS people um, for years. And it was unclear if they were, what they were trying to do because you could buy ADAS stuff, driver assistant stuff, you know, from a tier one and put it in your car. But they've been working at, at least on a system which does driver training on tracks. They're not the first ones to do it, but hopefully they will you know, they have investment money for Porsche and others. I'm hoping that Rimic might become more than just an EV supercar company. And it's a very cool company. And Matya Rimic's a good, good, good guy. Maybe they'll do more here. Because, I mean, imagine what Tesla could have done if they had been the guys. They had put driver education in the car. I think it'll come from somewhere else. Yeah. I, oh, oh, 100%. No doubt in my mind. But I, I think it... You're, you're right. And, you know, we've seen the rest of the industry move uh, and, and it's always kind of been a part of it. But but I think, yeah, this new technology is a real opportunity to create experiences, right? Like you buy a car, you get a physical thing that belongs to you and whatever. But like we've seen more of, uh, you know, Porsche, Porsche has these experience centers and they have all kinds of things where you go and you BMW as well. Like a lot of premium brands have this. And it does, it deepens the, the consumer's like understanding of the vehicle, you know, why, you know, the, the vehicle they have is, is special. Um, and it helps allow them to enjoy it in, in more safe ways while, you know, connecting them with other people who own the vehicles and like building a community. And there's just a lot of things in that kind of add-on experience world that could, I think, be a really, really good thing. But see, the person, and this is the problem, and this is the thing with Plaid too. So, so like, with Plaid, it's fascinating, right? Because anyway, first of all, and again, I have not dived super deep into this, but there's questions about like, can it actually do the time really? I mean, it's it sounds like they did a rolling start, but you know, it's, it's all BS. Nobody cares because listen, I, I've driven a Rimac model one. 
um, and I've driven most other super fast cars. Uh, these differences of a tenth of a second, a few tenths of a second, are not relevant to 99.99999% of people, certainly not on the street. And I mean, I'm not suggesting that people should not be allowed to buy the cars. What I am suggesting, and this is this is going to get a lot of hate mail for this, is that uh, we have no there's no constitutional right to buy a car. Just, just, we don't have it. Uh, and so it is insane that you can, that a 16 year old, someone's parent could go buy them a plaid in the same way that they could buy a Mustang or anything else without training, without training. And uh, if, if, we're not going to get better driver education out of the states. It doesn't look like we are. We've had fifty or hundred years to do it. Then let's make let's make technology that can do it. And for the for for Musk to go out there and talk about safety all day long, but then throw this out there and this videos. I mean, the videos of these people, you know, launching their plaids off of uh, entry ramps to interstates into traffic is just as crazy as Musk taking his hands off in a, in a TV segment and saying, "Look." Hands off. It's, and, it's, not, and, it's not cool. Yeah. Well, and especially when, and this, the weird thing to me about the whole thing is, is not only, as you mentioned, the incremental performance versus, you know, what a, a regular Model S can already do is like, who cares? But especially when you have to precondition the car for like eight minutes. It's not like you can just at any time put down your foot and you've got the, the advertised level of thing. And this taps into something that like, I think Tesla is kind of shooting themselves in the foot in long term, which is that they've so clearly become so fixated on numbers hitting a mark right and so you see it with their range numbers they want to have the the longest range of anybody in the industry although i guess that's changed a little now with them coming short of the the any, anyway the, you know but then people can't get the range in the real world they want to have the the quickest acceleration but is that actually usable in the real world and and nobody, nobody cares yeah i got to tell you though i am coming up on two and a half years my first tesla lease and i'll give them props for this uh, I've, I haven't had a screen crash in like a year and I would get another one, but it would not be a plat. It would be a long range model S if it wasn't for the stupid yoke. And this is a message. Okay, everybody so that, that's, yeah. that's what I want to talk yeah, about. And, and, yeah. and then I want to stop talking about Tesla because we, we know too much Tesla, yeah. but this yoke thing, I had a 1973 Citroen SM, uh, 1968, 69 technology. You know, um, I had I went one of the last ones imported the United States. And this car had a hydropneumatic um, variable ratio uh, steering system called Diravi in 1973. And so Tesla comes out with a yoke. And as Matt Farah and many other people who have driven yoke vehicles can tell you, you want a progressive ratio steering. And Tesla didn't put one in there. There's only one explanation. They wanted to cut costs and use the same steering system as Gus goes in the other cars or something like that. Because if you had any common sense or time, you would have put a, you put a bit of variable ratio steering in that car. And sorry, man, Alex Roy opinion. That was stupid. That's just not cool. That's just not cool. And it gets also to, and I think you're right. Like if you were doing this as a niche, you know, which is going to be premium, it's going to be a niche thing no matter what. But like, I, you know, that that's one thing that I, th- I think what's really fascinating is that, you know, Tesla has found that this user interface is 
one of the places, right? Obviously they're running out of, of room to like accelerate quicker, right? They need something and, and, and they've got, you know, lucid nipping on their heels in terms of range and, and a whole bunch of other, you know, metrics. They need to stand out somehow. They need to create, continue to create this perception that they are innovating. And guess what hasn't changed a lot? The user interface. In fact, the, the user interface that you get into any car today and you know where everything is, that dates back to the 1916 Cadillac Series 53, right? 1916. So yes, over 100 years now. When, and, when you say UI, you mean steering wheel, turnstocks, all that stuff? So three pedals, uh, the shifter to the to the right, and the steering wheel. Yeah, just how the, the basic layout of the controls is, is over 100 years old. And, and here's the crazy thing, is that just before the 100-year anniversary and the 10, 2010 timeframe, uh, you know, Toyota was accused of, you know, sudden unintended acceleration. And it turns out, and of course, a million theories were raised about bit flips and cosmic rays and spaghetti code and all this other stuff. The only thing, you know, none, none of that, to, again, based on the NASA study and, and everything that I've looked at, they never proved any of those, those theories. And the fundamental conclusion kind of has to be, well, people screwed it up. And so what happened was there's a you know, leading automaker with a great reputation, you know, was dragged literally six months, was dragged through the media, that congressional hearings that were just an absurd witch hunt. They spent billions of dollars, you know, with doing a series of recalls and repairs, trying to fix what might have been the problem. What? And then the, they still the got sued. They got sued for billions of problems. Yes. Yeah, so the pedals there, there was some, they recalled them because they were just going through everything, trying to figure out what it was. But even there, there was never, my dad took apart one of those pedals for to the back cars actually. And you can't find, there was never anything specifically proven there, but they, they were doing recalls because that's the right thing to do is to try and solve what you think might but be the most likely what, cause. Who didn't, didn't Audi go through this because they, they moved the pedal like an inch over. Yes. And I've always had, and this is why, you know, like, uh, there's been uh, complaints to NHTSA about Tesla's sudden unintended acceleration, and I've refused to touch it, even though I'm this big Tesla hater. And it's because you my are. dad beat it into my head at an early age. I remember him. He has a story about Parnelli Jones. He was he was working in TV in LA, and and he met Parnelli Jones, and Parnelli Jones took him for a ride in a seven liter Cadillac uh, Fleetwood. And this was when the Audi SUA scandal was going on. And Parnelli Jones says, "Look, this is a seven liter V8." The brakes on this this 1970-something or 80-something Fleetwood are shit, right? Terrible brakes. But look, if I step on the brakes, I can put as much gas into the 7-liter V8 as I want, and it won't move. The brakes are designed to be more powerful than the engine. And on a fundamental level, unless something really fundamentally wrong happens, uh, it's almost always pedal misapplication, right? And, and And my point of bringing up this all up is that is that you have a control scheme in place fundamentally unchanged with maybe a few variations for a century, right? And, and people still have problems with it, misapply pedals, screw up, and they're able to suck billions of dollars out of the car company that really didn't do anything fundamentally wrong. That, in a nutshell, is why the user interface hasn't changed much and that is why Tesla feels like there's an opportunity to do something very different with this yoke. Uh, and, 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 and it's worse than the yoke even is the, is the transmission, the predictive transmission thing where it's going to just know which direction you're going and it'll put you in that gear unless you're not. And then you can maybe change it on the screen or something like the reason this, this stuff has not been messed with 
for very, very good reasons. And that's because this is dangerous stuff and people screw up even with control schemes that are a century old. Oh, I can't wait to see how you engage autopilot on that car. But that's for another time because I haven't checked it out. What's the third topic? Because let's not run away with it, with too much Tesla. I, that, that was it. We, what? We have Nitsa, Carpathian, Plaid. Is there, is there something else you want to talk about? No. I think, oh, wait a second. Yes. Oh, but it's Tesla related again. I just want to say that I saw a headline the other day that said, uh, what was it? Um, Tesla, Plaid defeats piked peak cars built to win. Mm. And for those who don't know, Pikes Peak is a race, goes up a mountain, it's a pike called Pikes Peak. Everybody, every year people go, there are multiple classes, there's uh, there's overall time attack, and whatever, there's different classes of vehicles do it. And then there's an exhibition class where you can bring anything you want and you can go up. This Tesla Plaid ran in the exhibition class. Now, just so everybody un- understands, a couple of years ago, Volkswagen sent a specially prepared vehicle, which set the overall record at Pikes Peak as the fastest electric vehicle of any kind to ever go up that that uh, that course. And so, this headline—I mean, I don't want to. This is not Tesla's fault, but it is a an example of our times that the same piece of information can be viewed two different ways. And it's very important that we ask questions and understand what we're reading. Because the headline, uh, well, yeah, I guess the Tesla did come in faster than other vehicles in the exhibition class. But it came in, actually, I think, uh, ninth, eighth or ninth out of the all the vehicles in the class. Maybe it was tenth, which meant that nine vehicles came in faster. So the headline could also have said, you know, eight or nine internal combustion vehicles defeat Tesla. But that wouldn't be true either, because the exhibition class is not a race. It's not a spec series, it's not it, and it's very important that not just the average person in the street who only cares about whether things work or not, but investors and, and, and the media themselves, that everyone think twice about what a headline states. Because uh, there's a guy named Louis Anslow, who's the founder of the Pessimist Archive pod, uh, Twitter uh, account, which I enjoy. And he said something very interesting. He said that. Uh, it is very important to uh, to recognize misinsinuation when it happens. People like to insinuate things by starting with people say. Some have said it is it is it is uh, thought that. And misinsinuation is when you deliberately mislead in a headline, knowing that people may not read past the fold or even the story uh, in itself. Anyway, uh, yeah. That's my thoughts of the week. Anything else you want to add? Um, no, I think we can uh, pretty much leave it there. Uh, we are, you know, clearly kind of lost without Kirsten here, so we should probably just end end our suffering and uh, and uh, wrap it up here. Uh, and uh, yeah, looking forward to her, having her back and uh, having us be a little bit more on track. Kirsten is a is a very important part of this show, folks. Signing off. I'm Alex for 144 on all platforms, and my friend. Twitter Meyer on Twitter. This has been the Atomic Cast.